Hey, Gateway. How you guys doing? Don't worry, I'm not preaching today. <laughs> I am here to introduce Alex. As you guys know, we are going through our summer series. It's called, Who Do You Think We Are? I just want to give you guys a quick recap because we are now at week three. So first week, Alex was up, and he spoke about the birth of the church. He talked about the things that the church was all about, the diversity that the, the church had, people from all different backgrounds and nationalities. He also talked about the way the Holy Spirit moved and his involvement in shaping the lives of the early believers and guiding them to the things that we needed to do. He stressed on the, the person and work of Jesus Christ and the importance of Scripture. Last week I came up and I gave us a little kick in the pants, if you will, talking about how we needed to get a call to action and what that meant for us to remind us that we are witnesses for Jesus Christ and that we needed to get at that. Well, today we're going to continue to dig into Acts. Acts is going to come up, but before he does, let me go ahead and pray for him. Father God, we thank you so much for this day that you provided for us. Thank you for the opportunity to come into your house. Uh, We pray, Lord, that as we sung songs of worship, that they were pleasing to you and acceptable as offerings, as the the ancient uh, Israelites did. And I pray, Father God, as Alex comes, that you empower your servant, Lord, to communicate effectively. Pray for the hearts that are here, that you help to minister to them, prepare our hearts to hear what you have to say. So we ask that you bless it for your glory and for our benefit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Dean. I appreciate it. I want you to take a look at a couple of pictures because every once in a while you'll see somebody famous and then you go back and and see what they look like way back when. So does anybody know who this person is? This is when they were growing up in Pennsylvania. Next picture is when they're a college student at UVA, interestingly enough. And then you fast forward a couple of years, and you may recognize them. It's not Sarah Palin. It's actually Tina Fey. And Tina Fey has, over her career, I mean, she's still fairly young, I think, and she is somebody who's won lots of awards, eight Emmys, two Golden Globes, Five Screen Actors Guild Award. She's had a New York Times bestselling book. She's hosted the Golden Globes three years in a row. She's written stuff, produced stuff. I mean, somebody who's still on the upward trend in terms of their career. And seeing where they've come from, you know, if you were to be able to, to go back and read some of the story behind how she got to be where she is, you'd have a better understanding of who she is now and what really matters to her. Well, in the same way, if we look back at a couple of snapshots of the early church, which Acts is going to give us this morning, we can see maybe more clearly who we are today and what God wants from us and for us as the church today. So I need your help. I'm going to ask everybody that's, gosh, this is going to be tough. All right, so we're going to start over here. I'm going to ask your help in reading. we got three passages of Scripture that I want us to look at, and each of these three will give us kind of a snapshot of the church. So those of you that are on this side, on my right, your left, you're going to read the first section of Scripture. The people in the middle are going to read the second set of Scripture, and then the, the people over here, you're going to have to really speak up front and back because you guys are the third set, okay? So let's take a look at these verses. And the first one, we're going back to Acts chapter 2 where we started a couple of weeks ago. I touched on this passage, and then we kind of jumped forward, and we're grouping it together with these others because it talks about the church. So everybody over there, let's read this together. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. 
selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. All right, that's pretty good. Center section, show them how it's done on this next set of verses, okay? All the believers were in one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Okay, big finish this section. There's a lot of pressure on you guys, okay? The apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by evil spirits, and all of them were healed. So we've got three parallel snapshots here, and we'll actually look at a fourth one that is somewhat similar because it gives us an idea of what the church was like back then in the very early days of Christianity. So this first snapshot from Acts chapter 2, this is right after this crazy thing happens at Pentecost and people who are gathered there for this Jewish festival, Jews from all over the known world, speak tons of different languages. They hear the followers of Jesus speaking the truth about Jesus in their own language, in their own native tongue, even though these people have never been to their country. And it's a, it's a crazy sort of experience. Luke tells us that these people devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Now, uh, it's interesting. He doesn't say that they were generally open to the idea of the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and breaking of bread and prayer. He doesn't say there was modest interest among them in these four things. He says they devoted themselves. So there's this idea of commitment, of a continual prioritizing of these four things, but it's, it's not just out of obligation or guilt or manipulation. It's out of a desire that they themselves had. They devoted themselves. They committed to these priorities. And this may not be an exhaustive list. I don't think that's Luke's intention, but these are the top four on his list, the apostles' teaching. So we know from what Dean told us last week, what we've seen already in the first several chapters, the apostles' teaching was certainly based on Old Testament Scripture. That was the Scripture they had. But they also wrapped it around the life of Jesus and some of Jesus' teachings. So they talked a lot about Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. They explained who he was. He was really the Messiah that had been prophesied in the Old Testament. He was crucified and resurrected. And they taught not just to pass on information to these people, but so that people's lives could be absolutely radically changed. They were committed to fellowship, and that just means doing life together. Around Gateway, we talk about authentic Christian community. That's one of our priorities. That's 
a huge part of our identity as a church. And this passage, anywhere it talks about fellowship, about doing life together, it's talking about authentic Christian community. So the people were not pursuing their own priorities, but they were thinking more like a church family. They were helping each other out, making sure that if there was a need that one person had, somebody figured out a way to meet it. They were loving and serving each other. And we'll find a little more detail in this passage about what that looked like, but also in the passages that we'll look at later on this morning. It says they were committed to the breaking of bread. So they were committed. One of their top four things was food. I don't know exactly why that was such a huge priority for them, but it makes sense to me. They had meals together. It was part of their life together, whether it was having dinner in somebody's home or meeting up in a larger group. And included in this idea is clearly the idea of the Lord's Supper, but not necessarily how we observe it. You know, we do it on a Sunday morning and we have a little piece of bread that tastes like cardboard or we have some grape juice or something, you know, that taste reminiscent of wine. That is certainly a valid way to do it. But remember, they were following the pattern of Jesus, and they had the whole meal together. And there's evidence that makes us think that maybe every time they got together, like maybe we would ask a blessing, they would go, hey, hey, let's not forget. Remember Jesus, he took the piece of bread and he said, this is my body broken for you. So let's eat that and let's not forget what Jesus did for us. And then they'd take the cup and go, remember how he said, you know, this is my blood that was shed for you, the new covenant. Let's drink this wine and remember Jesus. And they would do that like every meal. Think about how, I guess you could do that with cereal, but anyway, there was the breaking of bread. It was a very high priority for them. And then prayer was a big deal for them. Certainly, structured time of prayer in the temple. As faithful Jews, there were regular times of prayer that they would have throughout the week, but there would also be other times of informal praying with a smaller group. Maybe it was in someone's home or off to the side in their place of business or just walking along the road with somebody but they would have known Jesus' habit of getting up early and getting away from everybody else and spending time just talking to God. And they were committed to the practice of prayer. Now, as a result of these priorities, Luke goes on and he tells us what happened. He says, everyone was filled with awe because all of these crazy, amazing wonders and miraculous signs done by the apostles. These were things that were crazy or unexplainable, attention-getting occurrences that really, they not just bordered on the supernatural, but all of them were sort of like, I don't know how to explain that. Ed preached, our our pastor preached uh, earlier in the year, a series called Fantastic. And he talked about some of the most unbelievable miracles that Jesus did in his lifetime. And his point was not to try to explain these things because by their very nature, the miraculous is unexplainable. But it was to just draw attention to the fact that, man, Jesus did a lot of unexplainable, crazy, life-changing, amazing, fantastic stuff. And here in Acts, we see that same ministry continued by the apostles. And then Luke goes on and tells us more about what this life together looked like for them. He said all the believers were together. And certainly physically they gathered often, but I think he's talking more in a spiritual sense as well, that they were unified, one heart and purpose. They probably didn't agree on politics. They may not have agreed on economic policy or immigration issues or anything like that, but they absolutely were on track when it came to Jesus. And if anybody had a need, then they would sell their possessions and goods and make sure that things were taken care of. They were generous and compassionate, and they took care of each other, not just because it was a good thing to do, but because Jesus had told them to do that. It says they kept on meeting together every day in the temple courts. So it wasn't just a a a once-a-week thing for them. It wasn't just, gosh, you know, if I have time, I'd love to hook up with some other people from my 
spiritual family. This was something they were committed to, and it was a day-in, day-out kind of spirituality. He says they would share these meals and talk about what God was doing and encourage each other with glad and sincere hearts. Glad and sincere hearts. It wasn't out of obligation. It wasn't because they had to. It's because they were filled with joy, and they got to. And they were praising God, giving him all the glory and the credit versus, wow, aren't we awesome? This is amazing. We've got such a cool church here. They were giving all the credit to God. And as a result of that, they were enjoying the favor of all the people. They were making an impression on spiritual outsiders, the people that you know were kind of beyond their circle, looking at them from a distance, trying to figure out, I wonder what all this Jesus business is about. And the Lord added to their number. The group was growing in size, and people were deciding to follow Jesus. So even at the very beginning of this life as a new community of followers of Christ, their focus wasn't just on like, hey, come here, come here, let's all get together and pray. God's going to bless us and, and have a holy huddle. They were thinking about other people. They were telling other people what was going on in their lives, and they were inviting other people into the circle. It's interesting. I, I don't know how you feel about this word. I grew up in a church where the idea of getting saved, that was a fairly common term used to, to talk about having a relationship with Jesus Christ, having some kind of a personal connection. And here, Luke says that the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. I think sometimes that's kind of an offensive term. The, the reality here, what Luke is getting at is everybody needs saving. Every one of us is, I mean, if we're honest, if you strip away all of the stuff that we surround ourselves with and the, the life that we get involved in and the seven things that we got to get done this afternoon, if, if you strip all that away and you look at us, we're a mess, every one of us. And that's not just true, you know, like interpersonally. If you ask our spouse, they would say, this is from a spiritual point of view, God looking at us. There's not one of us that's so smart or so good or so kind or compassionate or merciful that God owes us a single thing. But out of his mercy and his love, he sent his son, Christ, to, to not only model what sacrificial love looked like, but to actually lay down his life so that we could be forgiven and have a fresh start with God. So every one of us needs to be saved. And for as many people as, as who realize their need for saving, the Lord added them to this band of now several thousand people. So let's take a look at a summary of what's going on here. This slide is something we'll come back to. So there's apostles teaching, there's fellowship, doing life together, there's meals, prayer, there's awe because of all of these fantastic occurrences going on around them. There's a reaction from outsiders, which right now is very positive. As we get farther into the book of Acts, it's not going to be so positive. What we find throughout the book is that people outside of the church have very strong opinions about what's going on. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad, but at least the outsiders had some sort of clue of, of what these people were about. I'm not sure that's always true these days. But outsiders reacted, and then there was growth. Okay, so those are some things that we're going to come back to. Let's jump forward and look at the second snapshot. This is just past some of the material that Dean covered last week in Acts chapter 4. Now, we read a couple of minutes ago another passage that felt very familiar with this. And when you put these three together, it's like, oh, wow. It's almost like he's sort of saying the same thing over again. And there is a sense in which there's a lot of parallelism here, but there also you get a little bit about the development. He says they're together. They're unified in heart and mind. And then he goes on and says, with great power, the apostles 
are continuing to tell people about the resurrection of Jesus. And as a result of that, much grace is upon all of them. It's almost as if uh, they were so keenly aware of God's undeserved favor, his forgiveness, that they were just like soaking it up and it would come splashing down on them day after day and they absorbed it so much that it started to spill over in the lives of people around them. So a guy, you know, would cut in front of them in traffic with his camel and it's just going, they would show grace. They would go like, wow, that guy must be in a hurry. I'll pray for him. So this grace was upon all of them. Also in this passage, Luke tells us more about what you might think of as open-handed living. I had a pastor friend in in Texas who used that phrase. I don't know that he came up with it, but it's a great word picture of their life together and how they took care of things. They were open-handed. This wasn't a commune. Uh, This wasn't, if you're going to be a Christian, you've got to get rid of all of your stuff and take a vow of poverty. Uh, We know from Paul's writings later on in the New Testament, there were wealthy Christians and there were poor Christians. So in the early church, there was never this idea that you've got to join a commune, you know, and sing kumbaya around the fire and kind of do weird things. But they took care of each other, and they did it with this open-handed approach to living. In the first passage we read, we found out that they didn't hold on to their possessions with a tight grip. So if they saw a brother in need, instead of going like, this is my stuff and this is my property and it's my food and I earned it and I deserved it, they hold their things with an open hand. And they realize like, you know, if I'm ever going to be able to reach out and touch somebody, I can't be hanging on to my stuff. If I hold on to my stuff, then it's going to have a hold on me. If I worry about what I own, I may find out that it owns me. And I think for those of us that live in a really affluent area, we are very much at risk of holding on to our stuff too tightly. And these people chose, instead of being selfish, to be selfless. Perhaps they remembered Jesus' words about to whom much is given, much is expected. People shared everything they had so that no one was without something they needed. And as needs came up, people who owned land or houses or stuff would sell something to generate resources, and they would put what they got from that sale at the feet of the apostles. That's kind of a a way of Luke comes back to several times, sort of saying like, okay, so we're going to set it at the feet of leadership, and we're saying, you know, I'm, I'm not making a claim to that money anymore. I'm entrusting it to you, and whatever you decide to do with it, however you guys decide to distribute it to people in need, that's cool with me. God bless you. Use that. Let's make it work for the kingdom. So, Luke gives us then a positive example of this. Just after the passage, the second passage, the middle people read, he goes on and he gives us a really good example about a a man named Barnabas. And we find out more about Barnabas later in the book of Acts. And Barnabas had a field, he sold it, took all the money, and gave it to the apostles to distribute however they thought was best to use that money. Great example. But then there was also a really bad example that Luke gives us. There's a couple. The the husband is Ananias, the wife is Sapphira, and they decide together, they kind of come up with this plan. You know, we're going to give something to the church. We're going to sell some property, but we need some of the money ourselves, but let's make it sound like we're giving everything to the church. It'll be very impressive. And, you know, Barnabas got all that attention last week. So let's us approach this very, you know, wisely. This makes prudent financial sense. So Ananias comes, he gives money. And instead of operating with a glad and sincere heart, it's prideful, selfish, deceptive. And somehow Peter sees through what Ananias says to him. It's probably from divine insight. 
And he says, Ananias, man, how did Satan get a hold of you? Remember, Peter's the guy to whom Jesus said, hey, Satan, get behind me. So I have a feeling he knew exactly what he was saying, and he's confronting Ananias. He says, you're not just trying to deceive us. You're lying to the Holy Spirit and to God himself. You understand that's really stupid. God is not deceived. Did all the land belong to you before you sold it? Well, sure it did. Like, you didn't have to do this. You could have kept the land. Or you could have sold it and kept all of the money. Didn't all the money belong to you after you sold it? You could have kept as much or as little of it as you wanted. That's your choice. But you took what could have been an awesome, faith-filled, God-honoring idea, and you twisted it for your own personal gain. And you made it into something that was all about honoring yourself. And when Ananias hears this judgment from Peter and the weight kind of settles on him, he drops dead. There's a not, you know, like an explanation of was like, did Peter have like laser eyes and he just shot him down? Was it he was overcome with guilt? Or was it God just like, hey, dude, there's a consequence for sin and it's today. He's dead. They haul him off, bury him. Not long after the guys who have done the burial come back, I mean, within hours, his wife, Sapphira, shows up, completely unaware of what's going on. And Peter gives her a chance to kind of own up to this. He goes, hey, by the way, how much was it again that, that you guys sold the land for? And, and she, you know, does the story that they've agreed they're going to tell. You know, it makes them look good. And Peter says, really? Huh. So you're going to put God to the test. Like, you, you don't think God knows? You're going to blatantly sin and call it, you know, virtue. And just like her husband, Sapphira falls dead. And right then and there, she's carried out, buried beside her husband. We don't know the ins and outs of how this happened, but there's the clear implication that God was highly involved in it. And Luke wraps up this section by saying, great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. You think? Sure. You know, I mean, like, I'm not going to that church. They do crazy stuff. Now, I talked about this a couple of weeks ago, that Acts is narrative literature. So it's telling story, it's telling actual events, recounting these historical events. It's a descriptive type of literature. Other parts of the Bible are very prescriptive. So like James, where he says, you know, be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to get angry. That's prescriptive. I want to make sure that we're real clear on this. Even though it's descriptive, these passages apply to us just as much as prescriptive passages do. But we have to be a little discerning here. So from this account of what happened to Ananias and Sapphira, I'm not suggesting that if you ever lie, God is going to strike you dead. Or if you don't you know, sell your stuff and bring 100% of the proceeds, man, just look out because God is going to strike you down. That's not the point here, but I do think there's a very clear reminder that it's all too easy for us to want to excuse sin in ourselves and others, whether it's it's thoughts or feelings that shouldn't be given any room in our hearts or our minds, or letting worldly priorities and perspectives distract us from really focusing on what God values. I think we, especially today, are very quick to classify disobedience to God into major and minor categories, with major being the stuff that those people do, minor being the stuff that I struggle with. Sometimes we're comfortable with the idea of forgiveness, as long as we're not the party who's been offended. And I think we're okay with completely redefining what is acceptable to God and what is not, based on our opinion. 
You know, like, well, in my opinion, I think God would, you know, this is okay with him, but that's not. So I would say the point here is that God takes sin and judgment very seriously. And even those who have already been forgiven by Jesus' finished work on the cross, there are consequences to our wrong choices. And whenever we start to feel comfortable, like, you know, my level of sin is probably pretty okay with God because I don't really, you know, it's just little stuff. That's a dangerous approach to take. And sometimes God's judgment is not way down the road. Sometimes God's judgment for our sin is here and now, and it's very clear and direct. God takes sin seriously, and so should we. An interesting side note in this passage, Acts 5.11, it's the very first time that anywhere in the New Testament we hear this group of Jesus' followers called the church. And the word in Greek actually means the gathering, basically. You know, it's, it's the people who gather. And later on, that becomes sort of like the phrase that's used very often. But it was becoming obvious to these Jewish followers of Jesus the rabbi that they were not just like normal Jews. They were becoming something else. And Luke calls them the church because they were different. All right, so let's take another look at this summary uh, slide and see what shows up in this Passage. So we've got more of the apostles' teaching, especially Peter in this case talking to Ananias and Sapphira. We've got fellowship because they're living in a very open-handed way. And we see more about what this is supposed to look like. Nothing specifically about meals or prayer in this passage, but we assume they were still going on. And there was awe because of these fantastic occurrences. In this case, the awe sort of was more like fear, reverence for God. And then there was clearly a reaction from the outsiders, people who were not spiritual, were like terrified of this group because crazy stuff happened. And we don't hear about growth in this specific passage, but in just a couple of verses, we will. All right, so let's press on ahead to snapshot number three, which is just a few verses later in Acts chapter 5. This was the third passage that we looked at a few minutes ago that this side did such a great job of reading. And this is the one where the 12 apostles performed so many miraculous signs and wonders among the people. And now the believers start to meet in a specific area of the temple, Solomon's colonnade. It's like a portico along the temple. So by this stage of uh, the development of the church, they're still going to the synagogue. They're still going to the temple. They're still doing their Jewish religious stuff. But then they gather and they talk. And people could see them as they were walking in and out of the temple. They knew that's the place where those Jesus followers hang out. And maybe they would see them talking and discussing Scripture or, or praying for each other. Or, you know, I could envision maybe somebody who is Jewish and, and curious. They might go and kind of sit somewhere nearby so they could sort of hear what these people were talking about. You know, maybe they might even, if they're bold enough, get in a conversation with some of these Christ followers. But there's beginning to be this formation of an identity, and they even have a place where they gather and people know. Now, that's where you go if you want to find out about Jesus. You may know that Gateway is getting ready to build a building just up the road off of Gum Springs. And I hope that over the years ahead, people around here know, now, now that's a place you could go. If you want to hear about that Jesus stuff, over there. I'm not sure what they do, but I've heard you know, that they take that pretty seriously. So in spite of the whole Ananias and Sapphira thing, 
and people are afraid, but more and more men and women become believers and their lives begin to change and the word continues to spread and more people are added to their number. And people begin bringing their friends and family members who are sick and they put them like in the middle of the street hoping that as Peter walks by, maybe his shadow will fall on them and they'll get healed. And now, word is spread, not just throughout Jerusalem, but all the villages around, people start coming in. Crowds are gathering, and they're bringing anybody who's sick, anybody who's demon-possessed, anybody who's without hope. They're hoping that they can get healed. So now the word is getting out. So again, take a look at the summary slide and just sort of think about how these things show up. We're getting more about the apostles' teaching. Everybody knows that these guys are serious. They do this fantastic God stuff. People are getting healed. They continue to meet together in the temple courts. Don't have a lot about meals or prayer in this passage, but there's still this sense of awe or fear because of the fantastic occurrences. And outsiders, they're reacting. Still pretty positive, but there's a reaction and there's growth that goes on. All right, so now let's push ahead. The last passage that we're going to look at this morning, and I'll just summarize it for you. It's from Acts chapter 6, just the first seven verses. They start to have growing pains in this new church, in this new life together. Anywhere you have imperfect people, there's going to be conflict, and that's true several times as we read through the book of Acts. So nobody is arguing that, gosh, these people were so awesome. They were perfect. Nah, the church was all screwed up. It's just like the church today. Anywhere you have imperfect people gathered, there are going to be problems. And so the problem in this particular case is they've been supplying food to the widows in the group because these older women wouldn't have any way to provide for themselves. They didn't have pensions. They didn't have Social Security to meet their material needs. So the Greek-speaking Jews. So they worship God and they're following Jesus, but their background is Greek, probably you know not growing up Hebrew, but their families have turned to Christ. The Greek Jews say, well, wait a minute, how come all the Hebrew Jews' widows are getting all the food and our widows are ending up short? I mean, it just feels like favoritism here. And so the apostles call everyone together and say, look, we've got a problem here. Let's be honest about this. We haven't been doing a good job making sure that everybody gets fed. So we need to fix that. So here's the deal. We shouldn't stop with praying or teaching the word of God in order to improve our feeding ministry. We're not doing a very good job of juggling all this stuff. So we need your help. So here's how we'll do it. Why don't you guys get together and I want you to pick seven people from the group to take on this responsibility. And we'll keep focusing on the word and prayer because those are higher priorities. It's interesting that the qualifications for these seven men that they're supposed to choose are not. Pick people who can read food labels and who can carry large boxes of food and are very you know, hospitable and good about stretching food. And It's none of that. It's not the logistics. They say these people need to be full of the Spirit and full of wisdom. Those were the qualifications for these first servants. Interestingly, the word that's used when they refer to, we need people who can serve tables, basically, be waiters. The idea of of being a servant, the root word there is the same word that we get deacon from. To deek means to serve. That's, That's basically what a deacon is, is a servant. And so at Gateway, we have deacons who are usually small group leaders or team leaders, and their job is they're frontline servants. They help us day in and day out so that the staff And the elders can focus on spiritual things, preaching the word, making sure that spiritual priorities are in line with God. It's not that one area of ministry is any more important than the other, but they both need to get done. But these are the qualifications at this early stage of the game for deacons. They need to be full of the spirit of God and full of wisdom. So they pick seven people, including a guy named Stephen, who we'll hear more about next week. 
They present these seven men to the apostles who lay hands on them and pray over them. It's a, kind of like a sign of saying, like, we hereby authorize you. And on behalf of God, we're asking God to bless your ministry. Do this well because the kingdom of God needs to advance. And so we're entrusting you with this responsibility. And they get started. And they get a lot of work done. But it's a division of labor. And uh, much like we looked at a couple of weeks ago, the early church had to sort of work through problems and figure stuff out, whether it's replacing one of the 12, figuring out a better way for food delivery to the widows. There'll be other problems that come up, and it's interesting for us to look at that and see how they solve it. So again, let's look at the summary slide for this passage. There's a problem that comes up, but thanks to the apostles' leadership, it gets fixed. Fellowship is restored. That's really important to them. We want to take care of each other. There are meals involved in this one. That's really important to them. There's prayer. Don't hear anything specifically about awe because of these fantastic occurrences, but there's, again, reaction from outsiders. People hear about it. They go, wow, this is awesome, and the church continues to grow. In fact, it's growing so much that they have, they have some problems. So in all of these snapshots of the church, there's some common qualities that come up, and I guess I want to kind of wrap up this morning by asking you, how do you think we're doing in these areas? At one level, I think I would encourage you to think about this in a personal way. So for me, uh, am I really committed to the apostles' teaching, to you know, digging in to the Word of God and reading it and wrestling with it for myself? Or am I content just to show up on Sunday morning and kind of hear it and, no, oh, that's enough for me? A- am I going to get personally involved in it and let it shape who I am and how I handle situations? So personal level, all of these things, I think we ought to ask ourselves, how are we doing? And I'll give you time to do that in a couple of minutes. But it also seems wise for us to think about this in terms of our church family. How does this apply to Gateway? Now, if, if Gateway is not your church home, I don't know, I, let me just own it. We, we are a very imperfect church. We don't really have a widow feeding ministry right now, but we've got other areas where we have problems and try to work through those. And so I imagine if you hang out with anybody at Gateway and ask them, they could tell you some things that we haven't gotten right over the years. But This is something that we ought to think about for ourselves. If Gateway in your church home, whatever church you choose, you ought to be able to see a fairly high correlation between how they live these things out and what the Bible says. The qualities that we've talked about and observed in the church in these early days should also be a big part of any church that's really advancing the kingdom of God today. I think there, this is just my opinion, by the way, I think there's some areas where we can be really thankful that God has been gracious to us. So there are signs of growth at Gateway. You know, we've got new people coming in, new families. They're beginning to stick. Aaron has noticed in the preschool area, we need more volunteers. We're getting more kids. And it's not just, you know, our own people having more babies. These are new people coming in and bringing their children. And so we've also, not just, you know, like people coming on Sunday morning, but we've seen Interesting to me that on Wednesday night, like our our children's programs and our youth programs, we've got, through the school year, probably most Wednesday nights, we had 25 to 30 middle schoolers that would gather over at the Dulles South Multipurpose Center. That's more than we typically have on a Sunday morning here because our kids invite their friends. And even though their friends' families will not come to Gateway, may never come to Gateway, maybe their, their parents don't go to church, their kids will come on Wednesday nights. We took three kids to camp last week that aren't part of Gateway. And one of them, I think, had a really interesting experience with Christ for the very first time in her life. And that may have a huge impact on her family. 
So I'm encouraged because I think there are areas of growth. We see people not just coming but making commitments to Christ. So last Sunday, we baptized two. And we have others that are kind of lined up for future baptisms. It wasn't convenient last Sunday. And it's not just kids. Kids are great. And that reflects that our families are kind of pouring into the next generation and helping them understand what a relationship with Christ looks like. But we also see very regularly adults, people who have grown up not knowing what a Jesus line is or not having spiritual background, and yet they reach a point where they say, you know what? I want that relationship with Jesus in a way that that changes my life. So I'm encouraged about that. I could see some areas of potential growth for us. I feel bad for you guys because you don't hear what the staff hears as far as, you know, like amazing, incredible things going on. It's not really our place to tell you stories, you know, without somebody's permission. And sometimes something incredible happens in a person's life, and they just want to kind of keep it private for a while, share it with their family or their small group. So... Some really cool stuff I heard about this week, but I'm not going to tell you, so I'm sorry. (laughs) There are cool things going on, but it seems like there is a direct correlation between how open we are to God's supernatural work and how willing he is to do it. So if we're so busy and sophisticated and self-sufficient that we don't need God to come through in a big way, my experience has been God's kind of like, well, okay, I'm not going to waste that stuff on you. Routinely, when we go to foreign countries, mission frontiers, places where the gospel is kind of out on the ragged edge of that culture, there's a lot of weird, fantastic, hard-to-explain stuff that goes on. And I think God is still in that business. I don't know how open we are to that. I don't know that people around us, people that live in the neighborhoods around this school or around our church property where we're going to build later this year, I don't know that they have any idea who we are or that there's something going on. I don't think they react to us because they have no clue. Two things that I would point out specific areas of challenge. I don't know if this sounds weird coming from me, but one of them is meals. I am not a foodie. I eat, you know, like the same stuff over and over again. I'm not a cook. You know, I appreciate good food, but I think meals are something hugely important to God and something that we undervalue. So... Leonard Sweet wrote a book called From the Tablet to the Table. Uh, The idea of like, we got to get away from the Ten Commandments and you should do this and telling people what they should do and more to inviting them to sit down at a table and just talk and build a relationship and get to know. He points out that Jesus often used metaphors related to food. So he said, I'm the bread of life and blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. He performed miracles involving food and wine and it was at the table over a meal that he explained to his disciples that he was about to lay down his life for them. Leonard Sweet writes that table talk is relational and participatory. At the table, we don't just feed people, we build relationships. We build stories and memories. We associate people with the stories we hear of them and the memories we have of them, especially sensory memories. It is at the table where food and stories are passed from one person to another and one generation to another. It's where each of us learns who we are where we come from, what we can be, to whom we belong, and to what we are called. And I would argue, I mean, you know, there are non-Christian studies out there that show that one of the biggest factors in keeping teenagers off of drugs is having one meal a day with their family. That's not a Christian thing. That's something that sociologists recognize. It could be sitting down and encouraging a friend or a coworker who is struggling 
But there's an amazing opportunity for us to connect at a deeper level when we sit down at a table over a meal or at least a cup of coffee. And another area that I would challenge us, Northern Virginians, in is the idea of fellowship or community, doing life together. I feel like our busy lifestyle pushes fellowship and community to the side. In order to choose the pace of life and the standard of life that most of us have chosen, we don't have any margin that allows us to entertain or to to bring fellowship back to the center of the stage. I do know there's a lot of open-handed living going on around Gateway, and I want to point that out. Again, you may not know this, but there are several families at Gateway who have opened up their homes to other people so they could have a place to live. I was the beneficiary of a guy a couple of months ago who let me use his car for weeks and weeks and weeks. No strings attached, no payment involved, just like, yeah, it's here to be used. Make yourself useful. And I really value that. There are people here at Gateway, and if you call them to borrow a ladder or a lawnmower, they don't just let you borrow it. They show up with it, and they help you do the job. That's exactly what should be going on, but I feel like we've got room to expand that a bit. We get a taste of fellowship maybe on Sunday mornings before and after the service. A lot more of it happens in small groups during the week. But I think God is calling us to get far more serious about fellowship and doing life together than just putting a meeting on the calendar, showing up once or twice a week. Some of you have been reading in your small group the book Everyday Church. Terry recommended it to our staff, and we read it last year. There's a section in it where the authors point out that if church is really about more than meetings, then part of our mission is being good neighbors, good workers, good family members. We're supposed to be the kind of people that everyone would love to have as a neighbor. And we're called to live a compelling shared life that make other people say, I want the kind of life that they have. The idea of fellowship takes on a whole new meaning. I feel like that's something that for us maybe... God is saying, get more serious about it. Right before my daughter's senior year of college, she felt like God was telling her to take a year and do something very intentional and missional. Uh, She's always been real interested in missions, and so she committed to a year-long project called Mission Year. It's where young adults commit to raising their own support, and they move into a low-income community in an urban setting, and for a year... They serve the under-resourced people in that area in the name of Jesus. And they don't just, you know, like look at poverty from a distance. They live in it. So they walk. They ride the bus. They ride a bike. They don't have a car. They have $17 a week to spend on food. They are challenged to live among poor people as a poor person. And so Abby was involved in an area north side of Houston that was mostly immigrants and mostly non-English speakers, and much of her week was spent at a place called Mission Center. Mission Center of Houston runs several Christian places that offer clothing and food, job training and ESL and other services to under-resourced people. And then a couple of days a week, she would serve at a local church that was very serious about reaching their community. The church, interestingly enough, was called Ecclesia, which is that, that same word that Luke uses to describe the gathering, the church. And they bought what had been an old restaurant in the Montrose district of Houston, kind of a run-down building in a run-down area. 
And so on Sunday mornings, they would take all the tables and they'd scoot them aside and they'd have several different services because they couldn't fit very many people in the restaurant. During the week, it was a coffee house. It was a coffee shop. And because it was on Taft Street, it was called Taft Street Coffee House. And if you go online, even though they sold that building and moved to a warehouse now, you can still find the reviews on Yelp. And it's really interesting because this was the church that ran the coffee shop, but you read reviews from people who are not spiritual. And it's like, hey, I found a cool coffee shop. They use you know, certified organic fair trade coffee. It's a cool ambiance. They got lots of beat up couches and play music and stuff. But just be aware, there's a lot of Jesus-y stuff that goes on here. It's like, it's somehow connected with this church and they let in homeless people. So that can be irritating, but it's a really cool coffee place. Wow, how cool is that? So over and over again, they would try to reach out to the homeless. They got in trouble with the Department of Health because they didn't have a commercial kitchen, and they dared to fix food for homeless people. So the way they got creative about that was they invite their people to bring a picnic lunch every Sunday and go out into the neighborhood and just sit down with somebody and share your food. That's legal in Houston. Just don't fix it in your kitchen. And so Abby really loved this church because they were serious about serving homeless people and loving people who are under-resourced, and loving the least of these. And so when they sold that building, and they, they moved because it made sense to them to move to a larger facility and to be in a better position where they could get everybody together, larger groups of people, they had a weekend where they just kind of celebrated all that God had done in their building. And because Abby was helping with worship, she wrote a song about the building, uh, about the experience, about the community that they had experienced around these tables Disclaimer, this is my daughter. Pride doesn't enter into this at all. Yeah, it does. So I didn't have to pay royalties for this, but I want you to take a look at this video clip. And it's not our community of faith, but I think it will resonate with you about the power of community.
Would you bow your head and close your eyes? And I just want to invite you to spend the next minute or two listening to God. Maybe talking, but probably mostly just listening and see what he has to say to you. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for inviting us to your table. We recognize the cost you paid to buy us seats there. It's a table where we can feel welcome and grace abounds. There's more than enough. There are open seats and people who have yet to hear about your love and your invitation. So I pray that as a church family, you would help us to focus more and more on those who are far from you, those who are spiritual outsiders, those who have never experienced your grace. May we be people who love you and serve you in a way that makes a difference in the lives of the people around us. And we pray this in your name, Jesus, and for your honor and glory. everybody. Have a great, great week.